one. Uh, let's just pray before we open God's word, shall we? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you still our hearts. Uh, as we come under your word, we ask for your help by your spirit and by your grace. Uh, that we look at this text and that by your spirit we understand it and live it. And we ask this in the name of your son. Amen. Just bear with me. Right. The average Australian, apparently, buys around 56 new items of clothing every year. Men can probably read that about in a lifetime. <laughs> that averages out to about 14.8 kilos of clothes. Some households are estimated to... Uh, spend about $4,000 on clothing per year. Seems a strange topic to begin with, doesn't it? Uh, but this morning we do want to think about what we clothe ourselves in as Christians, as those who follow Christ, because that's actually the central theme of this passage. What will we be clothed in as Christians. It's not a free advert spot for Warn Again and our specials on this week. Uh, it's not necessarily an appeal for sustainable and ethical clothing practices, although that's a good thing too. But Peter here is concerned with what we're wearing. And he's already mentioned this uh, back in chapter 3. He's talked about the inner beauty of the heart. That's where we should focus our adorning not on the external things, but on the, the inner person of the heart. And he's now pointing to something similar here in chapter 5, that we are all to be clothed in humility. Now, you might have well read, uh, heard, as uh, Peter read for us this morning, and you thought, oh, I've got the morning off, because it's talking to elders and it's talking to young people. And we only have... Four elders in the room and all the young people have left, so I can just switch off here. Uh, no. Peter knew you'd think that, so he says, all of you. So I'm just making sure right at the start, you're all listening, even as we talk about elders and two elders and talk about younger people, we're all addressed in this passage. So don't check out this morning. Now, we've been looking through 1 Peter for a little while. We finish it next week, actually. But there's two recurring themes through 1 Peter, and they fit in with our section this morning. Well, those recurring themes are that of Christians and believers being called to submit uh, under authority, especially under the hand of God, as we'll see next week. And the other recurring theme is that as they do that, believers are to submit to God to authority and to follow the example of Christ, even in suffering, especially through suffering. Just in the previous section, what we looked at last week, uh, Peter has again outlined that Christians shouldn't be surprised when they suffer. 
And that part of that also is being aware of God's judgment, that Christ is returning, and that we should expect God to judge the world as to whether those who have obeyed his gospel or those who have not obeyed his gospel. And God's going to judge the world on those terms. And that judgment, in verse 17 of chapter 4, tells us, begins at God's house, begins at God's household, begins at the church. So if this is where God starts his judgment, at the return of Jesus, then Peter then is very concerned with what the church looks like, what the church leadership especially looks like, what elders do, how they do it, why they do it. And then how does the whole church then live in relation to the elders and to one another? So then chapter 5 starts with, so I exhort the elders among you. It's a direct flow from chapter 4 verse 17. Judgment begins at the house of God, so here are some instructions for how the household of God is to be run, how those in the household of God are meant to relate to each other. And Peter's going to lay out the exact role, the exact responsibility and requirements and reward of elders, but also the requirements of all believers in the church. And his closing point of his whole letter, as we'll see this morning and more next week, is this focus on the need for humility, for God's people to be humble, especially in the face of physical suffering and spiritual battles that we will face in order for Christians to be restored, confirmed, strengthened and established. As he says in verse 10, Christians need to understand this, that they be humble towards one another. So if that's a bit of what's surrounding it, let's look at the passage. Let's just walk through this. There's a lot here. And as um, I've already said, I don't want you to check out because I'm talking to the elders. And I'll hopefully... Um, They won't give me any dirty looks as I talk. But we want to think firstly about the role of elders. What do they do? So Peter, in verse 1, he's talking, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as the partaker in the glory that has been revealed, shepherd the flock of God. What do elders do? They shepherd. The first thing I just want to note briefly, because I think it's important. He's got an appeal to the elders, and it's important to notice that he's addressing multiple elders. He's talking to the elders among the people that he's talking to. In the gathering specific that's receiving this letter, there's, he's assuming there's multiple elders. And I think that's the standard and example of the whole New Testament early church. There's always one, more than one, elder in each gathering. This provides the church with a a safe, accountable, sustainable and wise structure of leadership. That's just a side note, but I think it's an important one. He's addressing multiple elders. Notice he's also speaking as an equal. He doesn't pull rank. He doesn't say, Peter, one of the chief disciples of Jesus. He says, no, Peter, a fellow elder. He also speaks as someone who can testify to the power and example of of Christ's sufferings. Someone who's witnessed it, seen it work out. 
He's also going to be someone who is a fellow partaker in the glory that's to come when Jesus returns. And he's, he's personally involved and invested in the very ministry he's speaking to these other elders about. Let's just stop and think about why Peter would be so invested in this, in shepherding the flock of God. If we recall back uh, after uh, Jesus' death and then after his resurrection, Jesus has an interaction with Peter, a very special interaction in John 21, where Jesus restores Peter. After Peter had denied him three times uh, during Jesus' trial, Jesus comes to Peter and three times he asks him, do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter affirms each time, yes, Lord, I love you. You know I love you. And each time Jesus instructed Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep, tend my flock, feed my lambs. There's this direct connection for Peter. He'd been called to shepherd. So he takes it as a personal instruction and command from Jesus and takes it very seriously that he is a shepherd of God's flock. Every other leader who is appointed to leadership in church should take it the same way that Peter does, as a direct command from Christ. They are shepherds. That is their main role. So shepherds, when we think about it, have two main roles. We've got some sheep farmers or entire sheep farmers in the room this morning. There's two roles of shepherds and sheep farmers. Usually that's to protect the sheep and provide for the sheep, generally. And that's to protect animals and provide for animals that sometimes don't want to be protected or provided for. Now, sheep farmers in Australia do things a little bit differently than in the Middle East as um, Jesus' time or even Peter's time. But some things remain the same. Sheep farming is a big commitment. There's, there's not really an off season. You've got your shearing season, your lambing season. But in between all of that, you've got a lot of work to do. There's maintenance of fences and construction of new fences. There's constant surveillance of whether they have enough feed, enough water, all these kinds of things. Pastoral work is difficult and backbreaking. I remember growing up as a, a child watching my dad during seasons, shearing season, hardly being able to walk because be stiff and tired and it's m- massive issues with his back. Peter here says elders are like, they are shepherds. They are to protect and provide care for the sheep. This is, is primarily done through the ministry of God's word and in prayer and also in proper and orderly observance of communion and baptism in the church on a weekly basis, but also in the general gathering of God's people at any time. Elders are to provide care in so many ways, in wisdom, in instruction, in, in doctrine. All these things are the responsibility of elders to protect and provide for those under their care. So when we think of that's the role of elders, they need to acknowledge that's, it's, that's their calling. They are to shepherd the flock. <clears throat> and if necessary, shepherds are to be on that front line. Again, Sheep farmers in Australia are not necessarily on the front line when it comes to protecting the sheep, but in Middle Eastern times especially, to be on the front line, to protect the sheep from predators, from attack, 
Just the same for elders in the church. Sometimes they're on the front line, bearing the brunt of attack and criticism, whether from the world or from others, whether it's physical, whether it's spiritual. They're often there taking that. To be devoted to God's word without compromise means coming under attack. To be held as well to a greater strictness, as James tells us. Elders need to be aware of their role and calling and to know that very delicate balance of loving authority and truth with love. And importantly, they also should know they are still sheep under other elders, but also under the chief shepherd. So Peter's call to his fellow elders is clear. Shepherd God's sheep. And we shepherd sheep. And we truly shepherd sheep. When a shepherd knows his sheep, he feeds his sheep, he guides his sheep, and he protects his sheep. That's the role of elders. <clears throat> Peter then moves on to talk some about the requirements of elders. How do they do what they do? In verses, last part of verse 2 there, exercising oversight. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Now, a congregation can have unrealistic expectations of what their elders and pastors are meant to do. It can also go the other way, where pastors and elders can sometimes have very unrealistic expectations of what the congregation should do. Peter was aware this might happen, that humans do this to one another. So he gives some contrasts to how this should work. And first, the first contrast he gives is elders shouldn't do this under obligation or compulsion, but they should be willing. They shouldn't do it out of compulsion, but be willing. That seems a strange thing that someone would lead because they've been forced to lead. Seems a strange thing to think about. Whether you'd want to follow someone who'd been forced to lead you. But in our, our Westminster parliamentary system, which we have here in Australia, sorry for doing a bit of political geek out this morning, but the Speaker of the House, uh, it's quite an important position sometimes when they're listened to, is dragged to the Speaker's chair when he's elected by the Parliament to take the position. There's a tradition called dragging. He's literally escorted. Uh, by two people that have nominated him. They one take each arm and he mock protests, or she mock protests, on the way to taking the chair. It's a tradition that's been going on for hundreds of years. And at, when you see it happen, when a new parliament is installed or a new speaker is elected, you look at it and go, that just looks completely stupid. What are they messing around like? Because they're all laughing as they're doing it. <clears throat> as much as it's a comedic thing, it, tradition stems back from hundreds of years ago when the Speaker of the House was the first usually to have their head chopped off when a parliament was overturned or a government was ousted. So there was something of a reluctance to take the position and people were forced to take it. But true leadership and true service of others requires a willingness to sacrifice a person's time, a person's resources. It's a big commitment. And it's necessary to, to count that cost and to be willing to do it. To have an attitude or demeanour of being conscripted and forced and coerced into it is not 
one that any elder should have. What would it look like for an elder or a pastor to be serving out of compulsion or constraint or obligation rather than willingness? There's, a, there's probably a few examples of that. Maybe one could be, well, I've got to pay off all those bad things I've done. So I serve because all my good deeds will eventually outweigh the bad things I did in my previous life. That would be a bad motivation and compulsion. Another one might be, well, my dad did it. My parents were in ministry. I didn't have much choice. It's just the natural progression. It's just where they, what they wanted me to do. Or another one could be, well, I've got a theological degree, so I better use it somehow. That would be a bad compulsion as well. One commentator put it like this. He said, involuntary ministry lacks enthusiasm, lacks motivation, and can have mediocrity and leads to depression. Involuntary ministry lacks enthusiasm, lacks motivation, usually leads to mediocrity and even depression. Elders are not conscripted unwillingly. They're willing to see that God desires their willingness, but willingly as God would have you. God coerces no one into his kingdom or into his service. And this is the same for elders in leadership. The next contrast that Peter gives is that of greed versus eagerness. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. There should be no financial motivation at all for any person taking position of leadership in the church. And that's not that there's uh, no form of income. Uh, Paul, in 1 Timothy 5, gives instructions that those who shepherd and teach should receive wages. The King James here translate this, what we have as shameful gain, as this wonderful phrase, a filthy lucre. And money in itself is not filthy, of course, but it comes filthy when you use others or you use corrupt means to increase your personal wealth. A shameful gain. Greed has been the downfall of many individuals countless churches and ministries and leaders and sadly many false teachers can be found out by their quest for personal profit. They build their whole ministry around financial gain. Creflo Dollar, and a name like that, you know this isn't going to end well. He still leads a TV, massive TV ministry and TV many congregation. He came under criticism several years ago because uh, he was asking his congregation to raise funds for the top-of-the-line luxury jet for $65 million. Nothing says filthy lucre like a $65 million jet. That would be greed. That would be shameful gain. No matter how he couched that in saying it was for mission trips to Africa, he already had another jet as well. Contrast that with another minister I, I know of several years ago. He used to drive a beat-up car around town. Just this little four-cylinder absolute bomb, really. And he used to 
visit those who were shut in. He used to take them to appointments or take them to shopping. He used to do all this, you know, pay his own way in petrol money and those kinds of things. And then one day out of the blue, his car just broke down. It wasn't out of the blue. It was, <laughs> was going to happen. But the church saw this and they all pitched in and they brought him a new second-hand car. I remember him showing me this car and he was just so keen. He was so eager. He said, look at this thing. He goes, this is too much. There's still a 10, 12-year-old car. He said, this is too much. This is too luxurious for me. He was overwhelmed with that. But his eager service of those in his care overtook anything that he felt about gaining anything for himself. The heart of the leader who wants to shepherd well is an eager one. He's keen to serve. He's keen to be available. He's keen to give. He's keen to meet others' needs, even despite his own. The last contrast that Peter gives says, not domineering over those in your charge for being examples to the flock. So do not dominate, but they're tender. You think of an example of babysitting. <clears throat> now, babysitting other people's children can actually be enjoyable and fun, but also very stressful at times. When children are entrusted into your care, there's this sort of novelty factor you have on your side because you're something new and the kids enjoy your company for the first 10 minutes after their parents are gone. And then reality sinks in. You've been entrusted with the care of little humans and you soon find out when you spend time with any children, they spend 90% of their time trying to find ways to injure themselves or others or acting, <laughs> acting in ways that you soon find out and make you all the more aware of the responsibility you've just has been placed on you, that you have to return them hopefully all in one piece. They've been given to you. Now, Peter hinges his command to elders not to dominate or lord it over those in their care. He hinges that on saying, these have been entrusted to you. These have been put in your charge, in your care. The people of the church do not belong to the elders. The elders are given responsibility of care for them, but not ownership. Now, this method of shepherding well without domineering, without controlling. Peter contrasts with well, elders are to have a faithful example to the flock. This example of faith, of humility, of wisdom, of, of Christ-likeness. The best kind of leaders are the ones who will be humble, the ones who will be like Jesus. Now, Again, uh, Lawson likes giving illustrations of landscaping. Apologies if I keep giving illustrations of retail background. But working in a Christian retail environment for many years gave me an insight to, unfortunately, to church leaders who like to lord it over others. There's nothing that reveals a person's heart or true personality sometimes than seeing them in a retail environment. There was multiple instances when I can recall when a, when a customer would pull out what they thought was the ultimate trump card when they were asked for a special discount or special treatment. Don't you know I'm a pastor? So, yeah, I do actually. 
It doesn't change the price of anything. Bad elders and shepherds don't just feel they have special rights and privileges. Bad shepherds and elders can sometimes be a bit more like Australian drovers than Middle Eastern shepherds. Australian drovers go with their stock whips and their dogs and hound and harass the flock to go in a certain direction. Rather than having a shepherd who is a nurturing, patient, loving shepherd who have their small flock and lead them carefully and tenderly to fresh pasture, to still waters, to safety. Just this last week, I've seen two examples of elders in different churches, uh, multiple elders in different churches, in very different ministry contexts and backgrounds and applications of theology, who have shown themselves to be good elders, united elders. And part of what showed themselves to be good elders was their willingness to lay themselves down, to be humble, to admit when they've made mistakes, but also to say, we want to care for the flock, even at cost to themselves. They actually quoted one of the videos I watched of elders making a statement this week, quoted this passage as their motivation for apologising to a congregation for decades of hurt. They were good shepherds, not perfect, but good. They're laying down themselves for the sake of the sheep, not domineering. Pastors and elders do not have special rights or privileges. It's not a VIP pass to do whatever you want in life or in the church. They don't get to lord it over others and domineer with fear and with guilt and manipulation. And any church leader that has a bent towards domineering or an overbearing invasion of authority into someone's life does not belong as a shepherd. Shepherding God's people has nothing to do with power or control. Nothing. Leaders who have a tender care and want to leave an example of Christ-likeness They're more concerned with others than they are with their own way. They're more concerned with meeting others and seeing them made like Jesus than they are with uh, coercing others to do their bidding. That, That kind of leadership is dangerous. And even Jesus himself gave explicit instructions in Mark chapter 10, 42 to 44. He's talking to those around him and he said, The world's version of ruling and and dominating others doesn't work in his kingdom. There's no part of it where this uh, ruling by force or by fear, that is not in his kingdom. So these things shouldn't be. Whoever wants to be first should actually be slave of all, just as Christ himself came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You think, so we thought of the, the role and requirements of elders. We'll briefly think of the reward of elders because verse 4 speaks to this. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. All elders and pastors 
uh, overseeing those in their care and in their church under the oversight of Jesus. He's the chief shepherd, the shepherd and overseer of all souls, as we've read at the end of chapter 2. And when this chief shepherd appears, when our chief shepherd appears, when Jesus returns, all those who have served him faithfully and trusted him through trial and suffering and been faithful examples to the flock of God, they will receive a reward. It's as fast as anything else they could have found or received in this life. This unfading crown of glory. Now that seems like a substantial reward and it is in some ways but we should not focus on whether it's a physical crown or not. There is a great reward. And getting a crown though, when you think about what that is, if it's physical or not, usually means you're in a position of great uniqueness. You're royal. You're chosen. And that's true. All Christians who are in Christ are all those things. And they will one day have glory. They will be glorified. Just as they were called, they'll end up being glorified. But it's not doesn't display the kind of wealth that leads you to ask for $65 million jets. I have a crown, therefore buy me a jet. It doesn't also lend itself to the kind of authority where you can demand special treatment in a bookshop or the kind of power and authority where you can control people's lives. That is not what this crown is for. This crown of glory doesn't belong to the person who receives it. And you notice the sequence as well is very important when all, all believers, not just leaders in the church, receive their glory. This is important. And the sequence, sequence is important because it cancels out anyone who's chasing glory for glory's sake. We receive an unfading crown of glory from Jesus because we follow him in his suffering. The path to glory is through suffering, it's through pain, it's through hurt, it's through humility, it's through faith, sacrifice. You have to go down before you can go up. It's the same pattern that Christ has shown to us. Think again of this example we have in the text of shepherds in general. Shepherds in Jesus' time especially were considered just one step above the gutter, sort of, probably nearly in there. They were with the beggars, they were with the lepers, they were outcasts from society, certainly considered unclean by religious standards. They were what we would probably equate in our modern day society to the kind of people you see on that TV show Struggle Street, if you've ever heard or seen of that. Those who are down on their luck, have nothing. The lowest in society. These, of course, were the first people to hear of Jesus' birth. When the angels came and announced it to humanity, they chose shepherds to announce it to. Jesus himself referred to himself as the good shepherd, and he says he's a good shepherd because he gives his life for his sheep. That's not a path that sounds very glorious or glamorous, does it? Low, humble, willing to sacrifice your life to be a good shepherd. Jesus' path to glory and exaltation where at his name every knee will bow, that path to that point 
when he'll be exalted above all things, came through his incarnation, his lowliness, his humility, his willingness to come from heaven to earth, to live as a man, to be found in fashion as a man, become a servant and die on a cross. That was Jesus' path to glory. So when we look at this and say elders and leaders and even all believers are going to receive glory and a crown, yes, we should anticipate the return of Christ, but we anticipate it for his sake. When he returns, when he appears, that will be glory. That will be enough. We want to move now in verse 5 to thinking about the responsibility of everyone in the church. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter speaks to others in the church. He deals firstly with the younger, but then every one. Just making that clear really again, just in case you've checked out and we're tuning back in now. Younger, but everyone. Now, when he speaks here of the younger ones in the church submitting to the elders, there's a couple of things I think we need to note. As we've already said, it fits with the whole, the rest of the theme of 1 Peter, the call of being believers and those who follow Jesus, submitting themselves under authority. And for that authority to be under God's hand as well. But it fits with Peter's theme, this instruction for believers to submit to authority. He's talked about submitting to human institutions. He's talked about submitting to unjust masters, even for wives to submit to husbands and husbands to submit to understanding their wives. So that he gets here now and talks to the church and says, younger ones submit to the elders. That's not something we should shirk at. It's a command. It's an instruction. It's clear. This is how God's good design works. We don't have to like it all the time, but we have to see the value and beauty of it and obey it. Now, there's two ways of this as well, the older and the younger. Respect for elders in age in general is a very good principle and a command from Scripture as well. We respect elders in age because of their standing, their wisdom, their faithfulness. But there's also a command here in this text I think specifically for the church context, for us to submit to elders of the church, the leaders in the church. Now, there's no room for disrespect based on age at any point in that. But both, I think, are here. This means, I think, clearly that mumbling about elders and pastors is not just disrespectful. And it's not just gossip, but it creates disunity, unnecessary conflict. Part of the health and growth of a church and a gathering of God's people hinges on all believers submitting themselves to one another and coming under the care of elders in the church. Now, our cultural or personal issues with authority or church leadership those are sometimes things we do have to work on and work through. 
but they must be placed in subjection under what God commands of all of us. Any problems that we have personally with leaders in the church should be addressed personally with leaders in the church with great humility. We've talked a lot about elders and their role and requirements and responsibilities. We're talking a little bit about now what it looks like for us to relate to one another. I think it's worth just stopping and pausing, even though it's not directly in the text. We've talked about how shepherds shepherd, but how do sheep get shepherded? How can you be shepherded well, especially in a church context? I think it's just good to stop and think of that. How are you part of God's flock? One, I think, firstly, I think <clears throat> to be part of God's flock, to be part of Church of Christ, have a shepherd. Know who your shepherd is and make sure your shepherd knows who you are. Local church membership is important. I think a healthy life of a believer is lived in local church membership. But shepherds need to know their sheep. Which flock do you belong to? The scripture knows nothing of solitary believers. It also knows nothing of the divided believer whose loyalties are here or there or who knows where. How can shepherds care for their sheep if they do not know who their sheep are? That needs to be an explicit, explained relationship where the lines of communication, responsibility and care are really clear. To be part of the flock, have a shepherd. To be part of the flock, for believers as well, I think hinges on prayer. Prayer grows a church and reliance on God in, in unity with one another. Sheep that pray together stay together. Probably placard you find at a certain Christian retailer. Another way to be part of the flock is to be a willing and active part of the flock, participating in the life and the ministry of the church. Christian life is not just two hours on a Sunday morning. It's not just a perfunctory roster involvement. It's meeting together and sharing life with other believers and Christians, seeking to build the kingdom together and building one another up together. And the most important part in this text of how to be part of the flock is to be humble. Clothe yourselves, all of you, in humility. That means forgive freely as you have been forgiven. Seek forgiveness when you know you have sinned against someone. Being clothed in humility towards one another removes any form of competition, any form of pride, any form of rivalry or selfish agenda. Being clothed in humility toward one another is an attitude of heart and mind that comes out in action. It means putting aside personal preferences. It's not about my personal comfort or convenience, it's about what will make the kingdom grow. Being clothed in humility towards one another means we address one another with respect and dignity. We don't demean one another, we don't disrespect one another. There's no distinction, there's no discrimination. There's humility. 
And we're told this is necessary because God opposes the proud. God opposes those who seek their own agenda above the needs of the church. Now, sheep are strange creatures. They really do think they know better than a human being. You could be directing them into a wonderful new paddock with fresh grass and luscious feed and shade and fresh water, and they'll stand at the gate and refuse to enter. And we look at that and go, oh, stupid sheep, of course they would. But I look at my life at times, and I've done exactly the same thing. Loving leaders and, and elders in churches I've been part of have wisely counselled me in a certain way and I've stood against them, I've opposed them. Refusing to see what was as plain as day in front of me. I knew better than them, they were just trying to control my life. I didn't want to go the way they were directing me. Those moments I look back on in life now and see that was God's loving opposition to me when I was proud. Because when God opposes us, that is not a lack of his love, that's him giving us what we want, he grieves that. For God to oppose the proud means he just gives them what they want. And that's a horrible position to be in. The contrast to that, of course, is that the humble receive grace. So how much humility do you need? You need so much humility, you can't possibly supply it on your own. None of us walked in here today clothed in our own humility, I would hope. Anyone who says, Hi, I'm, I'll say it because no one, then no one else has to. Hi, I'm Luke and I'm very humble. It just cancels itself out straight away, doesn't it? Those who are truly humble receive their humility from someone else who is truly humble and sinless and perfect. Your clothing of humility must come from Christ. And that's how my prayer as we end this morning is that we would be clothed in Jesus and by God's grace be found to be humble servants of him. Let's pray. Father, we look at this text this morning and we see a great need for a saviour. And we look to your son and we say, saviour like a shepherd lead us. Much we need your tender care. Lord, we ask that the church here at City Reach Marion would be found to be humbled under your hand. To be, Each one of us would be clothed in humility towards one another. Lord, we thank you and praise you for the elders and shepherds we do have here. That these are men that you have appointed and raised up. These are godly men. These are men who do show us a good example, who are willing, who are eager, who have counted the cost. Lord, bless these men, bless their families. Thank you for them and the gift they are to us. We ask that under their leadership and direction, we would be found to be a humble people, building up your kingdom, serving your will and not our own. Saviour, lead us as you do. Amen.